these two chapters, 2 Chronicles 3, which is the physical construction of the temple, and chapter 4 we're going to look at, which is very short. It's just the construction of the utensils and things. Um, uh, the question I would like you to keep in mind while we're reading and looking at pictures and diagrams and a lot of pictures tonight and so forth, what I would like you to just keep in mind is uh, what in these chapters is law and what in these chapters is gospel. And keeping in mind that every verse of scripture is either law or gospel or both. It, it, you know, they, it can be both. Um, but what here is, is which and how would we apply it? More so than what did they use everything for? I don't really, it doesn't concern me too much about what they used everything for, although we'll make a couple of educated guesses or uneducated guesses tonight. So anyway, getting right into chapter three. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. In that question, in that sentence rather, does anybody, any, anything jump out at you? This is the first time in the Bible we've encountered the phrase Mount Moriah since Genesis. What happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham almost sacrificed, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. That was on Mount Moriah. And now we find out, because we didn't know then, but now we find out that this is Mount Zion, right above Jerusalem. That's where that happened. And so, uh, when, yes? Is that why Jerusalem was important to David? It's one of the reasons why Jerusalem was important to David. So, uh, also, it was probably the most well-defended hill in, in, in Israel, and David wanted a, a, a really good capital city. Also, David had in mind what some of our founding fathers had in mind when they chose the District of Columbia to be our nation, nation's capital because it isn't in any state. And Jerusalem is in between Benjamin and Judah. So therefore, uh, David was having a political problem with the family of Saul, Benjamin, and his own family, Judah. And to, to put the capital in between them, to find a really good, well-defended hill in between was wonderful. Um, but I think also he had that in mind, that on this hill it will be provided, you know, what, what, uh, what Abraham had said back then. Um, <clears throat> okay. I was going to say something else. It escapes me. It's not important. He constructed it on that site. David had specified, namely the threshing floor of Ornan, otherwise Arauna, the Jebusite. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. This is an important verse for the chronology of the entire Old Testament. Because this... Uh, for one thing, it's the only place where we find out what day it was. Um, if, I, if I lay it out this way, in Kings, we find out that it was the second month. In Kings, it's called the month of Ziv. That's what comes after Nisan. And in Kings, we find out that it was the 480th year after the Exodus. Now, actually, that's not how they reckoned things chronologically 
or how you find out when the temple was built. The temple was built, to, to find that date, you go the other way, to how long did it exist before it was destroyed, because the destruction of the temple is a date we know and verify from more sources um, than, than, than scripture. Now, it's important to have scripture say it, but we also know that this king and this king were reigning and that this king took down the, you know, Bab, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took it down in that year. And that's, that's how we go backwards then to find out what year in our calendar it was built. And that's how we get the year when the Exodus happened is from the 480th year after the Exodus. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So spring of 966 BC, if you add 480 to that, you come up with 1446 BC, the year of the Exodus. Um, and uh, the reason biblical chronology can be challenging is because of some of those naughty pharaohs. Uh, some of the pharaohs didn't like their predecessors. And they had a habit of physically chiseling out the names of their predecessors from monuments. And so how do we know what the Egyptian chronology really is? Because we're missing names and dates and things. But every once in a while, uh, uh, something is discovered like an obelisk fell against a wall and so naughty Pharaoh couldn't chisel out his dad's name from that obelisk and, and you pry them apart and then you, oh, look at the, and the chronology changes. Um, I would like to know, I think I know the answer, but how many of us went to DMLC between 1950 and 1985? So that's five of us in this room. I still own my copy of HDF Kiddo's book. Um, no, that was the Greeks. Uh, who wrote uh, When Egypt Ruled the East? I forget who the guy was. But that was the old standard. It's a hardcover standard book, When Egypt Ruled the East. And it had a chronology of the pharaohs in it. And today, that chronology is incorrect because several pharaohs have been found that have to be put into that chronology. So a generation ago, everybody learned that the pharaoh of the Exodus, that is conservative biblical scholars, knew, who didn't pay attention to the dumb uh, Charlton Heston movie, which gets it wrong, but... Yeah, Ben-Hur. No, no uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. But uh, the, 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 the old educated guess was that it was Amenhotep II. However, because the it, biblical chronology doesn't change, but Egyptian chronology is like trying to push gravy around the plate with a fork. It, it's moving all the time. That was supposed to be really funny. Sorry. Okay, anyway. It's trying to catch my kittens. Um, or what did Lincoln say? Trying to shovel fleas across a barnyard. Yeah, yeah. Or trying to push fleas across a barnyard with a shovel or whatever he said. Anyway, um, now we have a different name there in that year 1446. It's no longer Amenhotep II, but what do I usually teach people? In 1492, the pharaoh's name was Thutmose II. In 1446 BC, the year of the Exodus, the Pharaoh's name was Thutmose III. So it's the guy after Amenhotep II. He was in, he's in between those two. Make sense? All right, let's go on. 
Now, back to the temple. These are the dimensions of the foundations which Solomon laid for the building of God's house. The length was 90 feet and the width 30 feet. That's 20 cubits by 60 cubits. How big is a cubit? It's 18 inches, roughly. It's from, it's the builder's elbow to the builder's fingertip. So my cubit is different than my dad's. Okay? But I'm just going to say, my uh, cubit is 18 inches. Also, my foot is exactly 12 inches. My thumb is exactly one inch. I'm just, I'm not, I'm just saying that I'm right. Okay, all right, let's just go on. Um, so, uh, however, how long was a cubit is a, a matter of argument among some, some scholars. I don't have to argue, I know. The porch that was in front of the temple building, or portico, depending on your translation, uh, was 30 feet, the same as the width of the building, and it was 30 feet high. <laughs> this drawing is wrong because it's not 30 feet high. Why? I, I, I don't get it. But anyway, so 30 feet high would be up here. So if I use the very complex program called Microsoft Paint, I can do that if I want to. It's really tricksy. Okay. Uh, and although it's somebody else's drawing, and I feel guilty doing that, but I also, uh, they have an, L if, if you look at the left side of that drawing, you see that thing that looks like a pot with two handles? That's the Ark of the Covenant. And it's obviously raised up with steps going up. We, we don't know that it had steps going up. So that might be wrong also. But uh, So he overlaid the inside with pure gold. Really, really pops, doesn't it? Um, uh, and it, you, know, you can tell that, oh yeah, a couple of candlesticks and it would be bright in there. So that's, uh, but maybe other reasons for gold besides good lighting. You know, we'll talk about that with the law gospel question. He lined the larger front room of the building with fur paneling, which he overlaid with fine gold and decorated with palm trees and chains. Um, just a comment, in Kings, it's the floor that's fur, the walls were cedar, but to most people, a pine tree is a pine tree is a pine tree, but anyway. Uh, uh, but here you see the palm trees, one artist's idea of the decoration of what they look like. Can you see the cherubim at the bottom? They have wings, and they, these actually have two heads, at least two heads. I don't know. They, although to me, they kind of look a little bit too much like Chinese dragons. I don't know about Chinese dragons in the temple of the Lord, but uh, we'll see. Um, so, Oh, and uh, the chains? I have no idea what the chains were for. Or where they were. I don't know. What would you use chains for? Decoration? I don't know. Maybe. maybe. I was thinking of the paper chains we made when I was a kid to put on the school Christmas tree. You know, that kind of thing. But they probably weren't construction paper and paste. So, or staple, if the teacher ran out of time. Okay. He beautified the house with dazzling precious stones. Don't know where theirs would have gone or what they, maybe they were in the chains, I don't know. Um, but the gold was gold of par, that's, that's pronounced parvayim. And I, was it good gold? Probably, or whatever. He also, where's, the, where's the, the best gold come from today? I don't know. 
Sunken treasure ships? I don't know where the best gold comes. Fort Knox. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where, where the best gold comes. He also overlaid the house, the beams and rafters, the thresholds and door frames, its walls and its doors with gold. And he carved cherubim on the walls. Um, there again are the cherubim. You can see tables and uh, the, the, you kind of see the gold lampstands. But boy, after a while, if your eyes aren't great, all the, you know, where is everything? You start to have a little bit of a reaction to, I might bump into tables and stuff in there. I don't know. You should see me at two in the morning in my own house. Meow, ow. Probably no cats in the holy place. Well, I don't know. He made the most holy place. It was 30 feet by 30 feet, the same dimensions as the width of the building. And he overlaid it with... 600 talents of fine gold. That's a lot of gold. Um, the Holy of Holies. Uh, now this has uh, exterior apartments, which the temple did have. But the inner part, do you see the middle is called, can you read that it says holy place? Or is, that, is that big enough? And then the Holy of Holies to the left, vestibule or the porch to the right. Um, and the Holy of Holies is the part that I have there in yellow. Um, and it was a cube. So same height as width as breadth, 30 feet. And 30 feet, 10 yards. Can you think of a football field? And 10 yards is one, you know, it's from the 10 to the 20-yard line. Is that about? It's a little, a little less than this room, isn't it? 10 yards? Verse 9, the weight of the gold nails was more than a pound he overlaid the upper areas with gold. Um, that's about a pound of pennies. That's a lot of pennies. Um, that's a big nail, too. It's smaller than a railroad spike, but bigger than most nails I've ever seen. So, but when you've got gold sheets and plates and things, they've got to be big, sturdy. Uh, let's move on to the cherubim. What are... Uh, what is a cherubim? There's a bad grammar, grammatically sentence for you. Cherubim. Multiple, multiple angels. Multiple angels, specifically cherubs. Yeah. How many wings do cherubs have? That's seraphim. Cherubs have two. And you can tell because the cherubs also have just a little bit of crimson. Oh, no, that's a red wing blackbird. But cherubim have just two wings and uh, seraphim have six. And we're going to see an error in somebody's painting in a little bit. Um, in the most holy, it is 618, by the way. In the most holy place, he made two carved cherubim that were overlaid with gold. The total wingspan of the cherubim was 30 feet. One wing of the first cherub was seven and a half feet long that touched the outer wall of the house. The other wing was also seven and a half feet long and touched the wing of the other cherub. What's seven and a half and seven and a half? 15, 15 is how much of 30? Half. So two of these things. It also means that their wings, I'm going to say touched in the middle of the back. Does that make sense? Because one wing and one wing, it's not shoulder, it's wing. So Now, different artist representations. You've got one, I like this representation, except that's the shortest pole on the Ark of the Covenant I ever want to see. That's just two guys lifting something that weighed hundreds of pounds and was top heavy. Here's the picture that's wrong. Those 
monstrosities have six wings. Those are seraphim and not cherubim. Huh? Now, some artists had a different idea, like let's, let's make it on the Assyrian model and make them griffins or hippogriffs and give them haircuts like the bangles or whatever they're, they're doing here. Um, and then you've got whatever's going on here, uh, which is more of an Ezekiel style, uh, which, which Solomon didn't have of, of uh, things. So Also, you've got the short Ark of the Covenant poles there. I, 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 what, what, I mean, was, was Samson both guys who lived at the Ark of the Covenant? I don't know. One wing of the other cherub was seven and a half feet long and touched the outer wall of the house. The other wing was also seven and a half feet long and touched the wing of the first cherub. Just, it, it, Hebrew likes to be satisfying. Well, let's, let's say all of the four dimensions to make sure there's no short wing anywhere. You know. uh, the wings of these cherubim spread out over 30 feet. They stood upright on their feet and they faced toward the front of the sanctuary building. But which way is the front? If this is church and the altar's up here, which way is front? Which means they face this way? Could be. Uh, could be. I, the, I, I've seen commentaries that talk about that and, and at least suggest that it could be because those are commentaries, by the way, they're all by Lutherans who take the text seriously. And think about, you know, which way is front? Because we're not told which way is the front. Could be that the front they were thinking of would be the front door of the, of the holy place, which would be facing the guy who walks in the room. But if only the high priest ever saw these things, does it really matter which direction they faced? I don't, you know, probably not. Well, the, yeah, the, the wings, well, the wings were touching the wall, and they were standing over the ark. So that's what we know. He made the veil of blue, this is the curtain, of blue, purple, and crimson material and fine white linen, and he decorated it with cherubim. I have not found a satisfactory picture, color picture of the temple curtain, except depicted as being torn in two the day of the crucifixion. I, uh, uh, Otherwise, the, 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 the renderings are, are, are all wrong and they're just, it's not right. And this one, um, uh, someone this morning thought that they're doing the polka, but I, I, I believe that they're just shocked that the thing is being torn in half. Um, but the colors here are worth talking about. The veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine white linen. What do those colors maybe suggest? Kind of royalty? Divinity and the white, purity and holiness, I suppose. Those are all fine colors for this thing. When I was in eighth grade, um, I went to a public middle school and my eighth grade homeroom teacher built, we're talking of those paper chains that we had around our rooms, every other classroom in the, in the school used what two colors for their Christmas paper chains? Red and green. But not Mr. Berge. Mr. Berge's ch paper chains were purple and brown. And brown was the color of the manger, which I think is a perfectly reasonable 
color choice for a manger, you know. Um, and why purple? Because, as my public school eighth grade homeroom teacher and science teacher said, because our Lord is divine. It was a great school to go to. Two-thirds of the faculty were Missouri Synod Lutherans, but it was a wonderful public school to go to back, back then. Um, all right, pillars. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about these pillars. So, for the front of the house, he made two pillars with a combined height, or in Hebrew, length. The word would be the same either way. Um, and the word combined, by the way, is not in the text. I think if you have an NIV or an EHV, it would be in brackets if it's even there. Um, but the word combined is not in the, in the original. Um, this is, what are we on? Chapter 3, verse 15. Um, so a combined height of 53 feet, which would be 35 cubits. And the capitals that were on top of them were seven and a half feet tall. What's a capital on a pillar? Where, where on the pillar is it? On the top. Yeah, on the top. Capital. Um, when you have capital punishment, what gets removed? The top of the person, the head. That's capital. And a capital on a pillar is the head, the top of the thing. Um, sorry to bring it up that way, but, um, but that's the cap. And why... I'm, can we just drift back to my middle school again? Why, as a child, did I have to memorize the difference in styles between Ionic, Doric, and Aeolian capitals? On but we did. I don't know. We also had to learn Egyptian hieroglyphs and all kinds of things. Well, there were no computers. There was nothing else to do. So they just threw all kinds of weird stuff at us. Okay. Let's go back to the capitals here. Uh, so uh, the problem here is that in Kings, these pillars are said to be 18 cubits high, but here in Chronicles, they're said to be 35 cubits high or long, and I think that it's combined. 18 and 18 is almost 35, right? My math is pretty close there. And have you ever seen driving, like out in the country or driving through town on a day when you're when you have to go somewhere quickly and you can't because they're taking those pieces of those gigantic um, either power lines or those great big, uh, 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 what am I thinking of, the wind turbines in sections that are huge when you see them and they're trying to navigate those up Broadway or whatever. And imagine a guy putting a tape measure on one and going this way across it to see how big it is. Would he say high or long? He might say long. You know. In fact, it's going to be high. You flip it up on its end, but he might say long. Um, and that's what I think we have here is that uh, they were measured. One guy actually measured one with a line, but it was the both of them together endwise, probably on a wagon they were being transported with to get up there. And, um, because they weren't made on site. Did you know this? The, the temple was built. It isn't in our text here, but it is elsewhere in the Bible. The temple was not constructed on site. But they had to cut the stones elsewhere and bring them because it had to be silent. 
God wanted it to be quiet and reverent up there um, on the site while, the, while these things were being assembled. So there are a lot of artist renditions of like workmen sweating and swinging hammers up there. That's not how it went at all. But can you imagine trying to fit something in place and dropping a hammer on your foot? And it's, you're supposed to be quiet up there? You know? You might burst into a psalm. You know? How lovely is your dwelling place. Sorry, Brahms hadn't written that yet, the tune at least, but uh, uh, <laughs> you might. Uh, so anyhow, let's just move on. So 18 cubits. Um, he also made chains for the inner sanctuary and also put them on the tops of the pillars. So this was some kind of decorative thing on the pillars. And he also made 100 pomegranates and put them on the chains. That thing on the right is an ivory, a carved ivory pomegranate. And I, it was dec purely decorative. Although, you know, that it was also probably hollow. And, uh, um, or it might, I mean, so it might have a rattle inside or not, but if it were hanging on a chain and the wind blew, it might get a little plinkety plink or plunk or whatever sound it might make. It might be pleasing. Um, but a pomegranate is also a fruit. What, what does a pomegranate have? Do you know when you cut it open? How, how, how many? Lots. So a pomegranate is like a, a representation of God's incredible blessing. You know, you've got this thing, but then wow, is there a lot inside and that, that kind of thing. Um, there are also some, of course, they're going to be, who have speculated that the pomegranate may have been the fruit of the tree of the, either the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. And, I, you know, how would we know that? But anyway. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.